This is Just Say HIE, the official podcast of the Hope for HIE Foundation. I'm Betsy Pilon, your host, bringing the stories of the HIE community from around the world to you, our listeners. Hope for HIE is a nonprofit organization and the largest collective of HIE families anywhere in the world. And each story across all outcomes has its own version of hope to share. Join us as we explore each unique journey and connection. The following conversation was a part of our Medical Advisory Board educational series. We're excited to bring these bonus episodes to you as a part of our Just Say HIE podcast. We hope you enjoy. Uh, Nancy, why don't you give us a little bit of background of you, and we'll talk to uh, Dr. Siegel in just a minute about his sure. uh, background as well. So, hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Um, again, like Betsy said, my name is Nancy. I am a pediatric feeding and swallowing specialist. Um, I've dedicated my career to um, the evaluation and diagnosis and treatment of infants and children with feeding and swallowing issues. Um, although by education, it says I'm a speech language pathologist, which is true. Um, I've never really worked with speech or language. It's primarily been medically based um, feeding and swallowing. So I know that a lot of parents will come and say, well, you're a speech therapist, can you help us with speech? And I'm like, eh, you don't want me doing that. <laughs> so anyway, um, I was in the NICU for 15 years. I've been in the hospital systems for close to 25. I've been in this career for 33 years. Um, opened my private practice approximately 16 years ago, um, survived the pandemic, and um, we're still here treating anybody who has any kind of condition related to feeding and swallowing. Wonderful. And Dr. Siegel. All right. I'm Scott, Scott Siegel, and um, yeah, I'm one of uh, uh, the, uh, I, I don't know what to say, one of Nancy's posse or whatnot. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've had the, the great fortune to work, you know, very closely with Nancy, I don't know for how many years at this point, and I don't even remember how we got started together, but, Me either. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been in this field of what we call, you know, tethered oral tissues, this is going on my 21st year of, of in that field, I've been in private practice for 21 years this year, um, and I'm, as you said, an oral and maxillofacial surgeon, so I do surgery of the face, the jaws, the mouth, teeth, taking teeth out. Um, I have a dental degree, but I don't practice anything like that. I do more medical things than anything else. Um, and a big specialty of mine is, you know, treating oral dysfunction um, related to feeding, especially related to feeding in, in this population, the <laughs> big population and neuroatypical, um, you know, patients that we see together. Um, and it's just, it's, you know, we do research in the area. We just had a nice article published on looking at some uh, some ways of doing ultrasound um, techniques of it for diagnosis and whatnot and trying to get some objective data out there for physicians and other medical professionals who kind of doubt what we do. Um, and, um, you know, if you want to look at my rest of my bio, you can always look at my website as, as well. Um, it's drscottsegel.com. Great. And we'll have um, information of yours and Nancy's uh, in the comments after the um, event has concluded for sure. Wonderful. And I just want to um, put this caveat out there. The internet today has been a little glitchy for all three of us. So if we cut out, we hope to cut back in. <laughs> right. um, but hopefully we're good to go now. 
Um, so I guess let's just start at the beginning. Uh, what is, you know, what is a, a, a lip or tongue tie and what are they? Um, and then kind of talk through the impact they can have on speech, swelling, and feeding, especially for, you know, babies and kids who may struggle with, you know, neurological conditions like HIE. Okay. Well, I think we'll defer to Scott to give the clinical version of what oral tethers are, what they're made up of, and then I can kind of pair off with how they affect or impact speech, swallowing, feeding, et cetera. Right. So, so basically we have this broad um, term called tethered oral tissues or TOTS as it's the acronym for, and that kind of encompasses the, the terms people, so many people have heard of tongue tie or the, you know, that term or lip ties and things like that. It's basically the little pieces of skin that hold or attach like the tongue down to the floor of the mouth or the lip to the, the gums. There are other areas in the mouth. Um, I don't know if maybe I can share slides later to look at to show you what it looks like. But it's basically these little attachments um, that we look at and we assess, you know, if they're impacting function, if they're impacting feeding, if they're impacting other things for function, we talk about potentially releasing these little tethers or little bands or ties um, to help improve function. You know, and as far as, you know, I can talk about the anatomy, but the anatomy is just one piece of the puzzle. We really kind of look at function. And when we talk about assessing these things, it really is kind of, I, I depend on Nancy, you know, 100% to tell me, I think this needs to be, you know, addressed or whatnot. It's not just how it looks, but how how is this, you know, child or baby functioning? Um, right. So I, I'm, I'm going to pair off of that. I think in the age of social media and Facebook groups, Instagram, et cetera, we have a lot of parents who are sharing, you know, pictures of their infants or their children, and they're flipping up the lip and asking, is this a lip tie? Is this a tongue tie, et cetera? I, I just wanna make it known that it is extremely important to have an assessment done by somebody skilled in this area who is skilled in understanding how those restrictions affect or impact the way that the oral cavity kind of integrates with each other and the musculature that's responsible for feeding and swallowing. I think too often I'm seeing um, these groups popping up and um, parents are getting anecdotal information, they're getting information from other parents, which is great for support. However, clinical diagnosis is really about how the function is being impacted. And that can only be assessed by someone who's skilled in the ability to really make that diagnosis. So it comes with um, looking at all of the oral musculature, the face, the lips, the tongue, um, different um, aspects of how these sort of uh, interact with one another in order to support feeding, whether it's breastfeeding, bottle feeding, cup drinking, spoon feeding. It can be at any point throughout the lifespan that we see that these small tethers or these sort of banded tissue can really um, cause what we, what we term as compensation, right? So we look at how the, the infant or the child is sort of at rest. So we know whether or not they have the ability to have um, symmetry of movement, if they're able to utilize all the muscles to kind of um, create what we are looking for, which is a labial seal. That's our first indication. We need to make sure that the lips are functioning. 
They're the first step in digestion. They're the first step in making sure our oral health is adequate, um, the ability to feed, the ability to suck, the ability to move our tongue. If we have our lips apart for any reason, whether it's because our tongue is protruding forward or because our jaw is weak, or we have some facial weakness where we kind of have this open mouth posture, that will affect how the tongue rests in the mouth, how we swallow, et cetera. So I always like to do this kind of little um, exercise with my families when I'm trying to explain why the lips are so important. And we can all do it now. And basically it's just, if you leave your mouth somewhat askew, slightly open, don't close it and try to swallow. And you can feel the impact of how much you need these muscles within the neck, within the chest, within the back of the neck, within the face, in order to make that swallow happen. So now if you think about how frequently a child needs to swallow while they're feeding, if we talk about suck, swallow, breathe coordination, you're talking every three seconds in an infant that that's supposed to occur. But if we're not getting an adequate seal because we have a tether in any of these places, now we're looking at compensation and we look at what that affects, how the feeding becomes, you know, sort of dysfunctional, right? Um, so I think when, you know, I think I'm getting ahead of myself, but when we are trying to assess, most of, most often the parents are coming here because either their children were doing well when they were feeding initially, and then they stopped or started to kind of pair off of feeding, um, whether they're losing weight, whether they're unable to meet the volume needs, whether um, they're getting gassy or any of those things that come along with it, these comorbid conditions. And quite frequently, we see that the pediatricians are like, they're colicky, they're gassy, um, they have reflux, which all could be true, but if we talk about colic in a general term, it's just a general term where there's a, other conditions that are actually causing it. They just don't know exactly what's causing it, so they give it this generalization of colic. Um, and that's what we see a lot in our typical population. In our neuroatypical population, we see these children really struggling because of what actually occurred for them during the birth process, um, how their neurological systems kind of shut down or were impaired during the birth process or after. Um, and then the actual interventions that are used in the NICU that sort of impact that soft tissue, right? So if we think about babies who in the HIE population, we know that some or most have been intubated for some period of time correct? And we know that that tubing within their mouth can cause the palatal junctures to not form appropriately, right? So if we're having these tubes in for a prolonged period of time, I also believe, and there's no studies yet on this, I believe that there is also an impact to the soft tissue. If we're having this tube coming in and resting upon the tongue, well, the tongue then can't rise to meet that palate. And we need that tongue to rise to meet that palate so it can create this concave shape, right? So there, if that tube is in the way, then the tongue is going to have to migrate closer to the floor of the mouth, or it's going to have to do this kind of cupping shape or this whale tail, we like to call it 
in, in our world. So when you see a baby's tongue and it's kind of like this C shape in the beginning, the only way that they can move that tongue during that period is in and out, right? So if this tube is there, we're only going to be moving the tongue from the front of the mouth to the back of the mouth. Why is that detrimental for a child? Because when we're going to breastfeed or when we're going to stick a nipple in for actual oral feedings, we need that tongue to be coming up to meet the nipple so it can extract the fluid. If it can't rise to meet that, then they're relying on suction. But remember, if we had the tube in our mouth, our jaws are now conditioned to be open and we have this open mouth resting posture. So all of these things contribute to poor feeding. But what we need to look at is where in this sort of progression of intervention, can we do a better job at making sure that these bands of tissue aren't our causal factors for our children failing to feed in the NICU? So it isn't just the intervention. We need to make sure that the oral anatomy is in a good condition and is reasonable to be able to feed because so often they're so quick to say, okay, we tried to bottle feed, they can't bottle feed or they're sucking on a pacifier. They do well on that, but the minute that you put any kind of fluid or introduce any kind of fluid, they fall apart. And what happens with that is you're setting them on a medical trajectory of having tube feedings, whether it's NG feeds or G2 feeds, the like. So if we need somebody in that NICU, we need people to really be looking at, is are these restrictions sort of contributing to why these children are failing? It's not just the neurological condition. Is there other anatomical issues that we need to really take a, a good long, hard look at? Sorry, that was really windy. <laughs> Makes so much sense though, but no, that's know, it's really good. These algorithms from the get-go, because by the time we see a lot of these kids, they've they've been set down this path of failure. Um, and it's really you know, they fail to diagnose certain issues up front. And just like you said, it's it starts in that NICU. And if it they're not getting that foundation there, we just see it just uh, kind of fall apart pretty quickly once they get out. Right. I think another thing too is when we're talking about intervention, it's not just the um, physical properties of tubes, orogastric tubes, intubation. It's also the style of taping. I mean, so many times I see when I was in the NICU, this was one of my biggest pet peeves was we don't need to be taping all of the muscles of the face down to hold a tube in place. And we don't need to have it in the center. You can move it to the side. You can alternate this. You can do things that preserve the oral function. And I think so often that we're, we're and not that this is a bad thing. I don't want to, you know, anybody to get upset. We're, we're worried about medical stability, which is absolutely the number one. We need to make sure that the kids are medically stable. However, we have to do a better job that we're not having these fallouts because we're worried about medically stabilizing because these children have to function once you medically stabilize them, they need to function once they're discharged. And you can't just be like, okay, well now you're discharged and then they fall in mine and Scott's lap and we have to be the ones who say, I don't know why we went for a tube so soon because we have these oral restrictions. If we got you sooner, we could have helped. I'm not saying avoid 
tube feeding, but we could have helped to preserve the oral function. Yeah, those are such great points. And I mean, we obviously see this all the time. Like I said, feeding and swallowing um, is probably one of the top things that are discussed, especially for our new families in the first year, because you're either, like you had said, you know, you're either coming home and it's sort of working or you hit a plateau and then you go, okay, you know, either they, you know, really get the hang of it and things go off to the races and you're, you're doing better, um, either in combination of therapy or on their own, or they're, you know, if they are sent home oral, you know, orally feeding, they're potentially plateauing out, um, several months after, you know, things are getting, um, you know, requirements for nutrition get bigger as they get bigger, you know, so that's, uh, right. that is definitely a question. And then we have families that are, you know, that, that are several years out where they might've had a, a significant, you know, maybe they've had a few couple months, uh, you know, a few months of uh, back-to-back admissions or, you know, you know, illness or seizures or, you know, things like that. And, and they're having a ton of feeding difficulties then, you know, that, that that's really impacting our kids. Um, so yeah, it just definitely varies so much, um, you know, in our community. And I think that, you know, when we, we talk about oral restrictions in this population, I don't want I don't want to um, have anybody misconstrue what the message is. It doesn't mean that releasing these restrictions is an automatic fix. And that's in any of the population, neurotypical, atypical. Um, the problem is, is that, you know, again, we go back to anecdotal information where you believe that somebody with a laser, not Scott, because he's not that guy, but there's a lot of people who are becoming, you know, purchasing the equipment, starting up this sort of practice without a team approach. And it's important, if not absolutely critical, that there's a speech pathologist who's savvy in this, as well as your provider, whether it's an ENT or a dentist or, or an oral maxillofacial surgeon. Um, you need an IBCLC if you're breastfeeding, you need body work for tension, you need PT for torticollis. There's so many conditions that are the result of having these ties. And I think we have to talk about where this all starts. Like this has been, you know, if we talk about embryology, right? We know that these tethers have essentially been there since the ninth, right? The ninth to 11th week, they're developing, the tongue is developing and this piece of cartilage, I'm sorry, of uh, collagen is already developing. So their sucking patterns are sort of laid in the womb, right? So if we already have this sort of restriction starting, they already are coming out with sort of mm, this um, behind the eight ball. So because babies are designed well and they have these small mouths and they have adipose tissue on the cheeks and the tongue just really needs to be in and out for this sort of nutritive suck, that's where we see the kids do okay for a couple of weeks. And then as the oral cavity starts to grow, and the responsibility of the oral musculature becomes more volitional, that's when we start to see the kids fall apart and where these restrictions start to rear their ugly heads, right? Um, but in the case of a child who has HIE, we may not see that for weeks or months because either they're not getting the care in the NICU with a feeding specialist, or they're taking so long once they get discharged to get to somebody who can actually help them feed. So 
whether it's finding the, the right person to administer the feeding and swallowing you know, therapy or whether that person is just unaware, you need a good um, team approach and you need the pediatricians to start or stop dismissing the fact that this can be contributing in their, in their, feeding, in their feeding journey, right? So, so often we hear a lot of parents say, oh, my pediatrician um, evaluated and said he doesn't have a tongue tie or um, he can stick his tongue out, you know, and we know a lot in this population that forward resting posture is one of the neurological signs or symptoms. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they can use it functionally. So just because you can have your tongue cross over the lips does not mean that that is indicative of not having an oral restriction. Again, it's the way in which that wave formation or the elevation, the mid rise of the tongue to the palate is what we need for appropriate speech and feeding. Yeah, that's okay, just... Scott, jump in. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, you know, it's like you, you I just kind of say ditto. Um, but, you know, when, when I speak to the families and, and it doesn't matter, you know, neurotypical versus atypical, we always say, you know, this is not the silver bullet or magic bullet. It's a piece of a puzzle. And I, I talk about, you know, this is a potential roadblock for your child that we can safely remove, um, you know, with minimal risk, minimal complication. In conjunction, you know, uh, just as an adjunct to the therapy, it, it really helps, you know, the, the feeding therapist do their work and do their magic, as we say, I, you know, we cut these tethers or release the, the tension, you know, this fascia tension and whatnot to allow that tongue to elevate. And that's one of the things that we had just, you know, published was looking at dysphagia, we're looking at, you know, airway protective mechanisms and feeding and swallowing and, you know, normal feeding, breast and bottle feeding and looking at it across the, the um, all, all forms. And we see that that tongue elevation is the big key. So trying to get that education out to the pediatricians where they say you can stick your tongue out, you're gaining weight, they're okay. Or they have a, something called a mild tie. In our areas of specialty, we say there's really no such thing as a mild tie. We say it's like being mildly pregnant to somebody. If your child has an issue that is potentially caused by this restriction, it's a hundred percent to them. It's severe to them, you know. So, it, and then they just go on based on appearance. That's why I try to get away from looking at these things. On we talk about the social media thing, and people send you pictures. Is this a tie and whatnot? It's like right. I need to have that functional assessment, you know, by by a, a very qualified, what we call tot savvy and educated feeding therapist um, or IBCLC, you know, somebody like a Nancy who's got a lot of experience because you can't just take a weekend course and get this. And you can't just buy a laser from a laser company after a weekend course or, or laser oh. to do this or do it well. Did you freeze? You just froze the last <laughs> sentence and a half maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I said or what I, but I was saying that, you know, you can't just take a weekend course. You can't just, um, you know, go to a laser conference and buy a laser and expect to um, come out, you know, laser blazing and, and get great success with this stuff. Right. 100% agree. <laughs> so when we talk about I think a really helpful overview of the impact that these can have on, you know, speech and swallowing and feeding. Um, 
And so, you know, and you talked a little bit about identification and having, making sure that it's done by, um, you know, kind of this comprehensive team approach. Can you also talk about like what, you know, we're having a lot of questions that are popping in of like, what kind of professional, because we're having different experiences, as you might imagine, Mm -hmm. of people who go to their pediatrician, people that are going to the speech pathologist, people that are getting referrals to ENT, um, you know, what there are many different roads to uh, mitigating these. What, you know, can you talk through that a little bit about what your advice would be for these families? Hmm. That, that's a big question, Lawrence. And it's a lot of confusion. For, for me, I get confused on who I'm working with and who who's qualified or putting out their qualifications saying that they are qualified. So it's, you really have to do due diligence, you know, and it's, I would say one positive aspect of the social media area is you can get a lot of advice and guidance from either parents or whatnot um, in your local area. Um, you know, there are, there are tongue-tie groups, there's feeding groups, there's, you know, lactation, speech. So, you know, I come from it at a different angle than maybe Nancy will, but, you know, and, and I get tagged a lot on these social media groups. And they've been okay for certain guidance to try to get to the right professional, whether it's a lactation consultant, whether it's a feeding therapist, speech therapist, um, and then trying to get to the right release provider, you know, who's either in a lot of these social media groups will have um, what we call preferred providers, or there's a, there's a couple of national um, people that are trying to get preferred provider networks out there for, for people. And, and it's not about bashing pediatricians or whatnot. It's just not part of the education at this point. Um, I'm a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and we've been trying to work with that group and trying to get this integrated into medical education, trying to get it integrated into dental education so that there's an understanding, you know, from the, the medical community. Um, as much as you talk about, you know, Nancy can talk about this speech and feeding education as well. But it's a very frustrating and confusing thing. Right. Now, I, I have to second that, you know, that so often it's, uh, you know, for lack of a better explanation, it's really through trial and error that we're building our teams out here mm-hmm. and even nationally. So, you know, when Scott speaks to due diligence, it's important to have the conversations with these, you know, therapists or providers because I'm, I'm getting emails and tagged in things as well all over the country and globally, like who can I go to? So, you know, I think it's important that you understand um, one, it, the two providers that typically do this would be someone like Scott, who is a pediatric dentist and oral maxillofacial surgeon. And then there's ENTs that do this as well. Um, you know, there we talk about um, laser revision or release versus scissor release, where a lot of practitioners are still um, are they're good at their job and they're good at their craft and they're doing scissor releases, which are good. Um, but a lot, I'm going to say, in this population, I find it hard pressed to find someone to do a thorough release or a complete release on my kids who have neurological conditions. So I always defer um, to using the laser because I find that for these kids, it's a lot easier for them um, in the pain aspect as all, and also um, for the bleeding aspect. You know, if we're talking about kids who are having problems swallowing, we certainly don't need them having, you know, 
this consistent amount of blood being pulled in their mouth because they're not going to be able to manage that. And you know that when anything bleeds in the mouth, the minute it hits saliva, it looks like it's a liter versus a tablespoon. So we get panicked, right? Um, so I, I tend to always defer to the laser, especially for the kids who are in my HIE population. Um, speaking to that, I, I think it's important for our group, for the group here, that you need a, you need a skilled feeding and swallowing therapist who understands um, why we're releasing. Okay, so meaning what are the benefits for releasing this and why we wouldn't release it, okay? So um, addressing this fact is if we don't see that there's underlying movement, meaning that the tongue is essentially stuck to the floor of the mouth and when we evaluate, we try to see if there's movement either to the sides, if they can lift it. If we're not getting that neurological drive to the tongue, the muscle, then just releasing this is not gonna do anything. It's, it's just going to heal right back where it was. We need some range of motion of that tongue. So I know that a lot of um, my community will come here and say, well, you release so-and-so's tongue. I want my son or daughter to have their tongue release. But the critical factor in all of this is I need to make sure that there's going to be movement once we do that, okay? And if we're not going to get that movement, we're essentially setting this child up for more failure because now we're gonna have scar tissue that's essentially going to anchor that tongue even further or the lip. And so that's not gonna be beneficial at all. And in fact, you're going to make things worse. So we see that in other situations, not ours, but in other situations where parents have come and said, we had it released, you know, our speech therapist in, in this area told us we should go have it released and we did. And now we're noticing more drooling, they're coughing and choking more. Well, that wouldn't be the candidate, right? We need to have at least an intact, somewhat intact system so that we can work with that. So if we don't have the, the underlying movements or those sort of foundational skills, it wouldn't be something that I would rush to do. However, on the likewise, if I have a child that comes to me and I see that we're not gonna be able to make great gains if we don't address this first. And Scott knows I will call him and be like, I'm gonna send you a picture, tell me what you think. Um, do, you, do you think it'll be beneficial? Do you, where do you think we should start the process? Should we do the tongue? Should we do the lip? Do we do the buckles, you know, the cheek ties? And, and he will give great advice and say, well, let me assess them and then we'll see what the impact is. And then if it's necessary, we'll do it. And most often it's the right call because they come back and I'm able to do an efficient job in getting the oral musculature to work together to make the feeding better or at least the swallowing. Gosh, I think you brought up such amazing points and answered so many people's questions that have been popping in. Um, I did wanna ask a point of clarification. Um, someone had asked the question of um, laser versus cold steel. Is that what you're talking, like the scissor, is that the cold steel? I just wanted to make sure that that was. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there is another um, approach, the diode, right? Which is different. I don't know many um, professionals that use a lot of diode sort of, but. I think when you're talking hard steel, you're talking about scissors, right, Scott? Yeah, it's basically scissors, scalpel. That's what we term right. cold steel. Okay. 
Yeah, just that's so helpful because that was a question that came in that's, and I- you know, The traditional way of doing it. Got um, it. I, I, you know, and again, we talk about, you know, the, the benefits of each of them. There's many, many good scissor providers. One of my mentor was a, an amazing scissor provider, but we talk about this population and you talk about the bleeding aspect is really what we're trying to deal with. If, right. if you have someone who's at an aspiration risk or struggling to handle secretions to begin with, you know, I, I, it's so much faster, more efficient, you know, less pain, you know, when we compare side by side. And I think, I'm sorry, I wanted to jump into this because it's been boiling in my head. Um, I think we need to explain the difference between when we say tongue tie, right? Anterior versus posterior, because what we're essentially discussing right now is a posterior tongue tie. The tongue is restricted to the floor of the mouth with a thick banding of tissue or, or collagen to the floor of the mouth. There's also another tie that occurs in the front of the tongue, which kind of gives it this sweetheart look, this kind of concave or humped look to the tongue when they stick it forward. The anterior tie is usually taken care of with a scissor. I mean, a lot of the pediatricians used to do it with a scissor and just cut that anterior tie. However, we're knowing through research and through you know actively sharing our information with all of the professionals is that if there's typically an anterior tie, most often there's a posterior tie, correct? Yes. We're, we would see that tie even further back. So I think it's important to differentiate between tongue tie in the traditional sense and posterior tongue tie, which is what we're talking about the impact in feeding and swallowing. Great, and I know you just, you touched on this and I wanted to kind of bring up this question as well. So when you talk about the actual functionality of being able to move and what, who would be a good candidate currently and who might not be, um, I know, you know, going through my own son's journey of um, some feeding issues and we uh, worked with an OT for his and, you know, we're very successful with, you know, helping him along with his feeding. Um, but I know, so, so I'm guessing that this is not necessarily a forever thing, right? Like if someone, it could just be, you know, kids are going to potentially develop, you know, better feeding skills with that, you know, speech pathologist or OT or whoever, whoever they're working with, um, to improve their oral motor capabilities. Um, and so, you know, I just, I know that we have a lot of families that are looking at, you know, when their kids are little and saying maybe, okay, they're not a great candidate right now. And again, as Scott said before, this is a piece of the puzzle, right? There's, there's mm -hmm. multifacets to this. So I just wanted to, you know, kind of bring that out as a point of clarification um, because we do have a lot of families that are, whose kids I know are like three and four and five. And, you know, I can think of the other, you know, other people in our community who's, you know, kids have come to see you in particular, Nancy. And then, I mean, they're like six, seven, eight years old and where they might not have been ready for something like that, that revision earlier, but then, um, you know, we're ready later. Right. And, and it's important. Timing is everything. The timing of the release is critical in both populations, neurotypical, neuroatypical, infancy, toddlerhood, etc. I think it's important to note that, you know, there is some level of cognition that's necessary as they get older, because it's not just working on, um, 
you know, oral motor exercises with them. You need an oral myofunctional therapist. And one of the criteria is, is that you have to be able to imitate. So you need a, a certain level of cognition in order for that to occur. So imitation of those motor movements and being able to place, you know, small pieces of rubber band, et cetera, different tools that they, I'm not an oral myofunctional therapist because I primarily work with infants or, you know, the um, neurologically impaired population. But uh, many of my colleagues are fantastic oral myofunctional therapists. And, you know, we're, we're trying to do a better job as a community of professionals to delineate who is the appropriate person to see, right? So if we're talking about feeding and swallowing in three and under, right, then it would probably be a speech pathologist or an occupational therapist who is skilled in this arena, okay? It would need to be somebody who understands anatomy and physiology and how it, you know, is impacted by this tie or what are your goals going to be so that it does make that functioning better. And so often I hear from many parents is that I'll get these emails saying that, you know, my OT said I should get this released. And I said, okay, that's great, but what's the plan following that? And that's where we have our sort of disconnect. So we have a lot of professionals who are referring for this, which is great that you've identified it, but now what are you going to do to remediate it? How are you going to make it better for this child to feed? And that is where I'm finding it to be a very difficult area because it's not just about how the oral cavity is functioning. It's how is it functioning with food, with liquid? How are they able to make a definitive impact in making this better for the child? That's the critical part. That's the part that's missing in a lot of these plans. 100%, 100%. There's so many times when I've gotten, you know, what I think is a baby or patient that's ready because parents said they've been working with their speech or feeding therapist and whatnot. They said they're ready to go. And then all of a sudden we do the procedure and the wheels come off the bus. You know, it's everything's going backwards because there was no real pre-op prep and aftercare, you know, regimen or protocol or something in place. So that's of utmost importance. And having that team and an experienced team is really, you know, you circle back to that and, you know, knowing where to get that, you know, your association is helpful for that too, because you can help direct this population to the right people. You know, you can, you know, we try to get those of us in the field, we kind of know who is who in each of the states or whatnot. And we do have local networks that we know who is, you know, so we are probably good resources to reach out to, um, you know, versus just trying to figure it out on your own. But um, it, it's really, it can't, you know, hit that over your head. I don't know how you just really can't do it enough because you want to, first of all, do no harm. And, you know, we yeah. see a lot of harm being done. And I can't say, you know, even in my own practice, I've had many cases over the years that uh, you think you're doing a great thing and all of a sudden they're backwards, you're sliding backwards. So it's knowing when not to, you know, do a surgical procedure is, is maybe even more important than do, just doing it, you know? Right. Yeah, that discernment is definitely a piece that I think perhaps our families might struggle with sometimes because everyone wants to do all the things to try to help their kids the best, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's, no one wants their kids to, you know, to struggle with things, obviously. Um, but 
you know, I think a lot of times also it's difficult for people to take that news, whatever it is, whether it's this or something else of, no, this is not going to help your child either at this time or, you know, they're not a good candidate because of X, Y, and Z. And then kind of, you know, having to process that as a, as a parent of, wow, I really thought this might be something that helps. Um, and kind of that, that moment where that doesn't feel good. Right. And, and, and you're right. And it's a difficult moment. And there's been times where I've been faced with that, where I've identified that is absolutely a restriction that is causing a lot of the problems. However, you know, releasing it is not going to make it better per se. And in fact, we may, like Scott said, you know, the wheels coming off the bus. It's, it's true. We can create more issues if we attack it that way. And I say attack it because I've seen, you know, there are dentists and, and ENTs who are like, all right, we'll do it because you think this is going to make it better for your child. And because, you know, they're berated, you're, you know, sort of, hammered down into the situation and there are physicians who will do it but it doesn't necessarily mean that that was the right step and unfortunately this is where we go back to education training who are the appropriate people and I know I keep saying the same thing over and over again without sort of you know a solution but um you know you have to understand too in our professional world just like you said, you want everything to happen for your child, if that could be a positive in their world. However, it's very difficult for us to do research because in order to do research, we have to get the same child and say, no, you can have it. And yes, you can have it. What parent is going to agree to that? Mm -hmm. There's going to be very little that'll sign up for that study because if I've identified that that is the problem, they're going to be like, do it but I have to say no, because I want to study this child, no one's going to sign. So you see how difficult it is in so many factions mm -hmm. that we can't get good data to try and help lay the foundation so that we can educate the families. We're trying, but it, it's just, it's very hard. Well, and that's just such an interesting thing. And we can talk about this offline too, um, just because, you know, as Hope HIA has been getting more involved in different uh, facets of, you know, the medical community and research community in particular, you know, um, you know, through NIH, there's this PCORI program where it is, it's not like the double blind, you know, studies of traditional NIH, and it is really involving patient and families, everyone's at the same table developing these together. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a newer model of funding and of research. And I just wonder if there's, you know, potentially opportunity there, you know, that we can look at. Great. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. That's, that's a great way to, to look at this because it's like you said, you know, and we get it, I get it all the time from, you know, my medical colleagues, like this, you're not giving me studies. I need to see studies. Like we're limited. We can't do these studies in the population. Just like Nancy said, it's like, we can't, you know, deprive somebody of a treatment that's really going to help them. And, you know, Put them into different cohorts that way it just doesn't work so coming up with these other you know ways of doing the, the research and if nih you know can move forward with that i think it's a great way to do that yeah it's just an interesting i've, I've just been a part of you know a couple of these now and it, it, it's it's really nice to see because you're really in it together and develop it's it's patient and family-centered care <laughs> to research it's you know well you know so often we get hung up yeah. on evidence-based practice, right? And, and if I hear it 20,000 times a day. Where's the evidence-based, where's the evidence-based, you know, 
okay, so here's my evidence base. And this is what I say to my families. Your child wasn't feeding. We did this procedure. We did this therapy. Your child's feeding better. There's your study. And I say this to the doctors all the time. It's, it's yes, evidence-based practice is extremely important, but when you're talking about something that's unto someone's own, right? So even if we talk about, I'm gonna digress for a second. If you talk about, they're trying to do studies about the strength of the tongue and the rise of the tongue. And there's, you know, tongueometers and all of these things to get these, you know, numbers. And we own a lot of this stuff. However, clinically, that data is not relevant. It's like using surface EMG. It's your muscles and how much effort your muscles put out. So how can I take your child and say, yes, his tongue rose to the 10th level, but your child didn't, so we're gonna do that. We're gonna do the release on him. But it could be that that strength of tongue, the neurological drive to that muscle is better, whereas the other one is not, not because of the tether. And this is where we kind of all get sort of encapsulated into this research driven, which is important, um, but evidence-based practice when we're looking at infants who are failing to feed and what we're faced with is we're gonna put them on a medical trajectory they don't belong on, which so often Scott and I talk about this all the time, they wind up with feeding tubes. And then I see these babies coming in with alternate means of nutrition, whether it's G-tube or NG-tube, and the whole time, it was because there was a tether. There was no way for this baby to be successful. It failed because someone didn't do their job. And that's not okay. Like, that's not okay in our world. <laughs> so when, you know, even it doesn't matter just across the lifespan, if you're failing and there's other things that can sort of promote better oral health, better breathing, you know, reduce reflux. And I'm not saying that these are all causal factors related to the tongue tie, but we have seen the kids do much better once we release that tension and they're able to properly rest their tongue in the position that it was naturally designed to do. Exactly. You know, we, we always talk about this evidence based getting back to that, you know, and it's, we talk about experience and we talk about experience-based practice and, you know, best practices and, you know, but again, each child is so different or each, you know, baby is so different. They're unique. They're just like you're talking about. We can't just look at a number. We're not looking at a type one tongue tie versus this, or how much can they elevate? Those are great things, but you really want to understand what's going on with the function, what's going on, you know, with their sensory aspect, you know, are they feeling their tongue get up to the roof of the mouth or can they not feel that or can there's so many different little pieces of the puzzle that you look at all of this in, in the whole big picture. And we see so much of a failure to diagnose and that's, you know, the biggest thing that, you know, coming up from the, the ranks in the fields of medicine and pediatrics and, you know, or the NICUs or PICUs or wherever these kids are coming from, there's, there's a, a uniform failure to diagnose in the medical community. And it was a big lecture, you know, many years ago, at one of our big tongue tie conferences by a, a well-known pediatrician, Jim Murphy, who's also an IBCLC. And he gave this very eloquent lecture on failure to diagnose and how we're failing, you know, these families. In, in our field of medicine and dentistry or whatnot, you know, we're, we really need to kind of change the whole way we approach this. And it's so frustrating, but 
we're all in it together. There's been a lot of progress being made. It's slow. Yes. It's an uphill battle. But having these conversations, you know, in, in each of these arenas really helps stimulate more. And, and a lot of the families wind up going back to the pediatricians. They go back saying, you know, this this helped my family, helped my child. Please, pay, you know, maybe pay attention. And maybe you have a pediatrician that might be open-minded enough to, to think out of the box and, and move forward that way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we're always looking at that. That's, that's one of the biggest, I think, benefits of conversations like this is, you know, a lot of times in these situations, we don't even know what question as parents, what questions to ask. Right. So this is, this is giving empowering families of just to ask the question um, and whether they end up being a good candidate or not an appropriate candidate for something, at least for having these conversations and they're feeling empowered with knowledge and that these things are out there. Um, they have a better understanding of the role of, you know, what, you know, a provider should be doing um, or, you know, or that someone exists that specializes in something like this, you know, like awareness for that. Um, so I want to thank you both for coming on today. We have a few questions that are coming in. I think we covered like our basics of um, of our agenda this evening. I, you know, this has just been so amazing. Um, I really appreciate you both coming on and sharing your expertise. So I have a, do have a few, a, a few questions that have come in. Um, some are directly related to uh, tongue and lip ties and some are just some general SLP questions as well. Okay. So I'll, I'm going to throw them at you. I think we have about three or four and then we'll call it a night. Um, as is a suck reflex normal for an HIE toddler who has never eaten orally to still have? Huh, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. So if you're talking about them, I think I need more of a description of what they're saying is a suck reflex. Reflex, are they talking about them sucking on their tongue, sucking on their fingers, sucking in general? I think just sucking in general. She said, my son would still suckle 24 seven. Yeah, so are they working, if they're working with a speech pathologist, that can be migrated over to a functional sucking pattern. You need somebody to work with in order to transition that over. It's not necessarily normal to have a suckling reflex at this age, but again, the intervention is important because if we're getting that movement, then what are we looking for? Is it a sensory based issue? Are they looking for this sort of self-satisfying soothing? Are they looking for these muscles to integrate and the sensory system to sort of, I guess, you know, be the, the primary foundation for introducing something that they can manage orally? Um, does the child aspirate? I mean, that's an important question because, you, you know, when people come at me with, and, and, you know, with all due respect, when you, you make a broad generalization, it's hard to do that because there's so many other factors that are related to sucking reflex, right? Um, so we need to know, like, kind of the backstory. If, if they're aspirating, then we're certainly not going to be introducing anything, but we need to figure out why this is happening because it shouldn't be there at this point. Well, and those are great questions that they can bring up with their provider right. as well, right? Like yeah. you might not have thought of without this conversation. So thank you for that, Nancy. Um, the next question is, does a tongue tie have an impact on the function of the vocal cords? Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I'm, I'm going to say it potentially could. 
only because of tension. If we talk about that little exercise I did in the beginning, if we're talking about um, sort of clavicular tension or laryngeal tension because our tongue is anchored to the floor of our mouth, that tension that's created there over time could potentially affect it. It also could be affected by the way in which they're managing their secretions. Are their secretions pooling? Is that affecting? Are they having reflux that is getting up into the laryngeal area? That could be affecting the vocal cords. Um, is the tongue tie creating more problems with the reflux? So again, I hate to say this, but it, there's a lot of other factors that go into it. It's not just a one scripted answer. You know, there definitely could be contributing factors to having some sort of vocal cord dysfunction or even just impairment with the vocal cords. Awesome. And then the last question that uh, we'll talk about is in regards to uh, to different ties or tots, as I've learned this evening, um, you know, and the impact on speech, is it more that it can cause a speech delay or a speech impairment like with articulation issues or both? Again, great question. <laughs> so, you know, if we're talking about language and we're talking about the the language centers of the brain, I don't necessarily think that the tongue tie has the impairment on what the functionality of the brain is, right? So receptive expressive language is not necessarily going to be, um, this won't be the causal factor for having that sort of language delay. But if we're having a speech delay in terms of pronunciation, articulation, things like that due to the tether on the floor of the mouth, um, that can definitely delay their rapidity of how fast someone speaks, the, the, how they get their message out. You know, oftentimes Scott and I have seen so many kids that have come in and been diagnosed with, you know, global apraxia or apraxia of speech. And, you know, we'll look at these kids and there isn't any global apraxia. There is difficulty creating the sounds or making the sounds appropriately, but they may also have this tongue tie because they can't make those sounds, right? So yes, that can contribute to speech issues. We're looking at that more. I think a lot of um, sort of basic level sort of entry questions is what can it affect? So one of the things we look at is like your primary sounds like T, D, and L, but there's also bigger sounds like R that we're noticing in the older child that have been in speech forever doing this same repetitive S, R, any of these things. Well, they're not going to be able to do this unless the jaw is moving along with the mouth and along with the tongue, right? And they're acting as one unit. So those R's are never going to come out appropriate. So you need to look at that to see if that's also a root cause as to why we're not making any progress in speech. And that's a big deal. We don't ask those questions. Why is my son working on turtle for three years and looking at pictures of turtles and you're just sitting there going turtle, 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 and he can't make the sound. So Look at the anatomy, look at the physiology. I always defer back to anatomy and physiology. It's always good to get a clear picture of what they're doing. And then you can build your plan on that. I hope that oh, answered. <laughs> yes, super helpful. Honestly, thank you so much. I know those are kind of like um, fastballs coming at you. <laughs> <laughs> 
and like everything it depends and it's complicated right. and there's all these different factors that you need to look into but um i wanted to make sure that we just you know kind of talk through just at least to give people something to think about with that of quite again questions to bring back to their own um, team and this has just been such a wonderful um evening of of q a with you guys thank so much for sharing your amazing expertise um, and being so willing to do so. Like I said, this has been a topic that just continually comes up in our community. There's also, like you had addressed as well, there's all sorts of misinformation out there. We want to make sure that, you know, we're getting vetted experts that are, you know, coming in and giving people um, things to think about and talk about um, and really get a better understanding of what uh, their, their children might be facing and, and how their mouths are constructed and how different things impact, um, you know, the different systems in everything that's going on. I will just add one last thing. I think mm -hmm. uh, Scott and I have, we're doing a better job in trying to manage the children with neurological conditions, right? So when we get this neuroatypical child, mm -hmm. so often everybody's so concerned about everything else. Like I said in the beginning that we failed to kind of look at some primary causes of why things are sort of going south. Um, we're doing a better job, I think, in terms of the identification, the management, you know, we do intensives here. And when I see that the children have these, I immediately send to Scott because I know they're only here for a shortened duration. So I need to make the biggest impact as quickly as possible. And right. so do I think that that is appropriate in all scenarios, in all situations? No, but I don't have the luxury of having pre-release work, right? because I'm only seeing them for a short period of time. So I've got to get in, do what I've got to do, make the changes as fast as possible, and then communicate with whoever's going to take that case over when they go back home. So it's important to have that conversation. And so often, you know, we'll get, you know, no disrespect to any speech pathologists or OTs or whatever. No one communicates, no one calls no one, you know, if you're struggling, contact the therapist who, who, who recommended the procedure. So maybe they can help you because I can help you devise a plan that will be better suited to carry, you know, to, to make a better effort or a better impact in what the whole reason why we did it to begin with. Well, and I, I just want to point out too, we're in kind of this new era of telehealth too, where we right. can also as families advocate to get people on a call like yeah. this and say, yep. Hey, team, we want to make sure this handoff goes well, because if we're seeing so-and-so for this over here, we need to have this conversation and bring our providers together. And I think as parents, sometimes it's a communication skill set that, you know, right. you have to work on. Um, and it, you don't have to be aggressive about it, but you can be, you know, confident in saying this is, you know, let's all come together about this issue with these team members. You know, it's, it's just like building a baseball team. <laughs> And, well, and, and making sure people are talking so that way you're getting the, you know, you're, you know, a lot of people are traveling, they're, they're using their insurance money, they're using personal pocket, you know, you want to make sure that this value, mm -hmm. you know, everyone's coming together and are focused in the same, you know, way. 100%. And I think a lot of times I'll, I'll liken it to, you know, being a contractor on a project, right? There's a contractor for a reason because you don't want the cabinet builder and the person who's installing your tile. You know, you want everybody to kind of orchestrate this plan to make a beautiful kitchen. But when it comes to advocating for our children, where there's this disconnect, like we feel like we're being aggressive or we're being assertive or being pushy. You know, I 
I always say to my parents, who, who do you want to communicate? Like, who's going to take this over when you go back? Because if you're not going to have anybody to work with you, this is pointless. Mm -hmm. Two weeks of doing this is not going to be okay for anybody. Mm -hmm. It's just going to put the baby or the child in an uncomfortable situation. And we're going to work with them to get sort of the, the foundational skills and they're going to go home and not go any further. And that's, that's not okay. So we, we, again, you're right. We need to do a better job of communicating and in telehealth, you know, it's very easy to set up, you know, a follow-up to be like, okay, here's my team or here's part of my team. Mm -hmm. What should I ask my team? Because I went back and they were, you know, they're uneducated or they, they're not sure where to start. So Right. And, you know, most everyone means very well and wants everyone right. wants the best for our kids. Um, and that's, again, part of that team medicine approach, too. So that's, you know, yeah. I think that's such a, a helpful hint to make sure that, you know, we as parents can sit down with, you know, if we're spending time, I mean, a lot of families are doing intensives and different things. Like you want to get you want to get what you just invested Painful. in and time and money. Yeah. And, you know, like, you're uprooting your life for, you know, potentially a couple of weeks at a time. Yeah. It makes sense to go back and say, Hey, you know, I just did this. These are the things that we saw. And can we get, you know, on a call to make sure you guys are connecting and that there's this conversation that you, you have uh, for the benefit moving forward. So. Well, I think on the professional side too, everybody needs to put their egos aside. Um, you know, every once in a while, people will get defensive. And I say it as a generality, not as a specific, but, you know, like, who are you to tell me how to handle my patient? Well, I'm not. What I'm doing is I'm offering a plan of care that I know has value based on what I've seen preliminarily and how this affected and how I'm going to change it. And I need you as part of this team to help carry through with these goals that I've, you know, skillfully designed to make it better for this family. But so often we hear people like, well, I took this course, I know this, I know that, which is fine, but we kind of have to let that go a little bit. You know, work is, like you said, work as a team. Doesn't matter if I'm in New Jersey, if you're in California and you took X, Y, and Z course, I can still help you. I may have little nuances of doing this for 33 years that might be able to help you. Mm -hmm. So. So such great information and conversations. Um, Scott, parting words as, as we're shutting this down. <laughs> well, listen, you know, this is, it's a journey. Um, you know, the, the families are all on a journey. The professionals you're dealing with are on a journey. We're all kind of, you know, holding hands together and trying to do the best, you know, we can with what we know and the experience that we have at this point. So, you know, it's, it's, I think, um, you know, it was just a, a a great talk tonight just to kind of get things and hash things out and you know not get so bogged down in what something looks like or whatnot but understanding that there's a team understanding that open communication and advocating for your family is really the the thing that you need to to do if you if you're not able to do it then you have to have somebody that can help you do that absolutely um, again, I want to thank both of you for uh, joining us tonight and for everyone um, that has been tuning in. This will be available afterwards in the video section. It'll also be posted all throughout our social media sites and on our website. So everyone have a wonderful evening and thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank everybody. you. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hope for HIE's official podcast, Just Say HIE. If you have a story you'd like to share, be sure to keep in touch. Learn more about the work we do and sign up for our newsletter on our website at hopeforhie.org slash justsayhie. We look forward to connecting with you soon, and thanks for listening.